0: We have a vision at First Baptist Church, and our vision is that we would be a church that's about people and not programs. That God would form in us world-changing disciple makers. That's that would be our identity as a congregation. That we're just the people who go out and make disciples of Jesus Christ. A disciple is someone who's passionate and committed to following something, and that's what they're they're all about. Is 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 following and, and and glorifying somebody or something. We want to be followers of Jesus Christ, and we want to make followers of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. Everybody, everyone you know, including you, is a passionate, committed disciple of something. And it could be material things or what you're really committed to. I know a lot of people that that drives our culture. A lot of people if you start talking about here's here's a way to make more money or here's something you can buy if you have enough money, people sit up straight in their chairs. Their their eyes are locked in. They they care about that more than anything else. I know there are people who are passionate disciples of a particular political ideology, whether it's on the left or the right, They're excited about that, and that's what they want to read about. That's what they want to talk about. That's what they post about on social media. If that comes up in conversation, they get animated. Anything else, they're pretty chill. But politics comes up, boy, they want to win you over to their side. That's that's what they're disciples of. Everybody's a disciple of something. And maybe your cause is your house or your car or your favorite football team or your body or your yard. Or it could be a relationship that you don't have yet, but you sure hope you have it someday. Or it could be a relationship you're in right now. Maybe it's seeing your kids succeed or, or finding that perfect spouse or making that spouse you're with now that perfect spouse. Who knows? But the thing is, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But none of those things are what we were created for. We were created for a personal relationship with the God of the universe We were created to be disciples of His Son, Jesus Christ, who follow Him and who accomplish His purpose in the world. And that's really the only way to live. And our hearts are restless until we find that. We keep trying out other things until then. So what does it really look like to follow Jesus? It's easy for us to stand up here and say, be a disciple of Jesus, and and you sit there and say, okay, well, what does that mean? So at the start of this year, we came in with a plan to conform all the ministries of our church to three things. Three steps in the process of discipleship, and I want to share those with you. I've shared them before, but first step is connecting with God in worship. Everyone needs to know God personally and and spend time with Him every day, and at the start of this year, we, we we had a series about connecting with God and worship. We even had a, a particular Sunday where it was just music and, and preaching interspersed throughout the service so you'd see everything, all of it is worship. All of it is a, an opportunity to connect with God. But everything we do, not just in this building, but everything we do is an opportunity to connect with Him in worship. And that's how you start growing as a believer, start becoming a disciple. The second step is growing in Christ-like qualities into the character of Jesus That's what we're going to talk about in this series today. Starting today, those inner qualities start to form. And then the third step is reaching others with his love, just like our youth are doing this week in New Orleans, just like we did two weeks ago in VBS. When we reach others with his love, it changes us as well as them. This fall, we're going to, I'm going to preach a series about reaching others. And we're going to talk about how every one of us was created specifically by God with a particular gift, a particular way of reaching people. And your way is different than my way. You may be more intellectual than I am. Or you may be more confrontational. Or maybe you're more based on ministry and helping people's needs. Or maybe yours is based on your friendships. Or maybe yours is based on inviting people to church or prayer. But you're going to find out in the course of that series this fall, here's here's the way God made me to reach others. And here's how I uniquely... Help others come to know Christ. In the meantime, while, you're, while we're in that series, there's going to be a, a lesson in your life group that's going to match the series. It's based on a book called Becoming a Contagious Christian. So you'll get the same thing in the life group as you're getting in worship. I think it's going to be a very significant time for our church. But today I want us to look at that middle, that middle step growing in Christ-like qualities. John Ortberg, one of my favorite preachers, tells a story from when he was a young preacher boy in one of his early churches. There was a guy named Hank, and he remembers his name even though it's been many decades ago because Hank rhymes with crank, and Hank was a cranky guy. And I know that there are people who are kind of endearingly cranky that are kind of, you know, fussy and, and, you know, in a bad mood, but you can pick on them. You can mess with them. Not, Not Hank. Hank was just mean. Hank was just a A a mean guy, the kind of guy that everyone walked on eggshells around him because you didn't want him mad at you because he held a grudge and he'd air it out if he didn't like you. Hank was the kind of person who on paper sounds like the perfect Christian because he was in church every time the doors were open. He tithed faithfully 10% of his income to the church. He knew his Bible backwards and forwards. He was completely vice-free. He didn't smoke or drink. He didn't cuss. He didn't cheat on his wife. He didn't do anything you and I would disapprove of. He was just mean. He just didn't have any niceness in him. As Ortberg says, he practiced the ministry of cranial downsizing. If anybody he thought was getting a little uppity, he would he would take them down a few notches. If anybody was praising someone, whether it's the pastor or the person who sang a solo in church, he would have to come along and say something contrary. If anybody got excited or joyful, Hank seemed to believe that there was something unchristian about being happy, and so he'd come and let the air out of their balloon as best he could. Hank had a son who was very different from him and who was very in love with his wife. Hank, Hank's son never told Hank the story of how he met his wife because it was at a dance. And Hank didn't approve of dancing. And so he couldn't tell him the story. It was just this woman just sort of materialized as far as Hank was concerned. Hank didn't like the music in his church. It was too loud. Lots of people feel that way, I understand. But Hank took it too far. Hank actually reported his church to OSHA. The Occupational Safety and uh, Health Administration, I think it is. And so this government employee shows up at their church to pursue this claim of hazardous noise and, you know, takes his decibel meter out and listens to some music and walks away just shaking his head at the foolishness of it. Now, John Ortberg's point about Hank is it's not surprising that there are cranky people. We all have different personality types. The surprising thing is nobody ever thought Hank should change. Nobody ever expected. Nobody ever thought, you know, if he just grows a little bit, he'll become a nicer person. He'll become a kinder person and a more patient person. No, they just think, That's the way He is. And that's the way it would be if all we're talking about is religion. Because let's face it, religion doesn't change anybody. Religion is rules and rituals, and that teaches you how to be a quote-unquote good person, but it doesn't make you kind, doesn't make you patient, doesn't make you gentle, doesn't make you loving. Only God can do that. And apparently... There's a lot of us who haven't let God change us. If we know God, if the living God is alive inside of us, then we should be constantly growing, constantly changing. When I was a senior in high school, my Uncle Jimmy on my dad's side, he's six foot three, he said to me, Don't worry, I grew three inches when I was in college. That made me excited. And it didn't happen. We stop growing physically at a certain point in our lives. But we should never stop growing spiritually. You should be a better person today than you were five years ago if you're in Christ. If you're in Jesus five years from now, everyone who knows you should should find you more encouraging and more affirming and more loving and more inspiring than than they do today. We should never stop growing. But growing in what? What? I'm not just talking about church attendance and following some rules. If that's the case, Hank had that down. No, it's something different. I want just to look at Galatians 5 today. This is where we're starting the series. This is a passage known as the fruit of the Spirit. Paul is writing to, to say, here's how you know if God is alive inside of you. So let's pick up with verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now time out. Let me, you may have just glossed over that sentence, but what it says there is, you're not under the law. That doesn't mean God's commands don't matter anymore. They still do, they still apply. It's just that once the Holy Spirit is in you, it's no longer a case of walking around with a sheet of rules. Instead, it's the case of god's changing you day by day to become the kind of person who lives like jesus and so you don't have to wake up in the morning and go okay i'm 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 going to i'm going to be kind to people and i'm going to treat them i'm going to forgive people who've been ugly to me and i'm i'm going to i'm not going to say bad words and i'm you won't have to do that anymore Because slowly Jesus is changing you into a person like Himself who just naturally does the right thing. That's what this is about. Verse um, 19 says, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, he's just listed nine qualities that he calls the fruit of the Spirit. Notice he says fruit, singular, not fruit, plural. Let me tell you why that's significant. If he said fruits of the Spirit, you and I could go through this list and say, okay, you know, I'm bearing some of these fruits, but... You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm obviously a, a person who's good at faithfulness and goodness and following the rules, self-control. I'm a self-control tree. I'm not a joy tree. I'm not a love tree. I don't bear that kind of fruit. I'm just not one of those kinds of people. But that's not what he says. He says the fruit of the Spirit, singular. In other words, if Christ is in you, if the Holy Spirit is alive in you, you should be bearing all of these. People should see all of these in your life growing in your ability to do all these things. These are nine qualities. We're gonna look at three more at the end of these nine. So 12 in total, 12 qualities that you and I should be growing in. And I think it's gonna be a very challenging series. We're not just gonna look at what they are, but why they're important and how you can grow in these. But today we're gonna look at the first one on the list. The first on the list, anybody know? First one on the list is what? Love, right there, it's an open book test. Love. Love is the first of the qualities. It's no coincidence that Paul lists it first. It is consistently named in the New Testament as the the highest of all virtues. When Jesus was asked to sum up the law and, and what is the most important of all God's commands, He said, love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God and love others. That's the law right there. Paul, when he's writing 1 Corinthians 13, all you married people had that in your wedding, I'd be willing to bet money. 1 Corinthians 13 says, greater than faith, greater than hope, greater than anything else, even miracles, even martyrdom, greater than all those things is love. But please understand, when you hear the word love, if you're an American like us, like most of us, your, your mindset is is sort of distracted or, or drawn off sides by what popular culture says love is. Because books and movies and plays and music have all told us a story about what love is that isn't what, what God's Word says it is. It's something quite different. It's something uh, much weaker and much less life-changing. Based on books and movies and songs alone, love is what? It's Romeo and Juliet, so deeply in love, they'd rather die than be apart. It's Jack and Rose falling in love on the Titanic, and a love that would never die. Well, it would have stayed forever if that door would have been bigger that was floating in the North Atlantic. Um, Sorry for the spoiler. It has been 20 years, by the way. Um, Love is, this last year, it's Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, so deeply in love, they burst into song whenever they see each other right? If you listen to music, you know that what the world needs now is love, sweet love, because after all, love will keep us together. All you need is love, but you can't buy me love, and you shouldn't go looking for love in all the wrong places. Sometimes love hurts, especially when you've lost that loving feeling. And it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, I'll stop. Hey, at least I didn't sing. Um, God's version of love is quite different. So what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to contrast in three different ways what the world says about love and what God says about love. And I want to talk about how we can love in that way, how we can grow in our ability to love as God does. So three things. Number one, the world says love is a feeling. But God says love is a choice. Love is a feeling according to this world. We're very familiar with that idea. You hear people say all the time, I fell in love at first sight. Let me just say right from the start, there is no such thing as love at first sight. Okay? There is lust at first sight. There is infatuation at first sight. There is seeing someone and getting so slobber-knocked by your own hormones that you feel like testosterone on legs, and that's a good feeling, and that's something God created, and I'm not speaking against it. It happened to me once. It was wonderful. I have great memories of it, but it's not love, okay? There was a movie a few years ago, some of you may remember, called The Vow. And there were two very attractive people starring in the movie, Rachel McAdams and Channing Tatum. Pretty easy on the eyes, both of them. And in the movie, they were in a car wreck. They were married in a car wreck. She was injured. She sustained a brain injury that caused her to forget who he was. She didn't remember him at all, didn't remember being married to him or anything. So for the rest of the movie, he had to win her love back. He had to he had to woo her as if for the first time. And you can probably figure out how the story ends. It doesn't hurt that he looked like Channing Tatum. Um, but believe it or not, that's actually based on a true story. And shortly after the movie came out, the couple that that actually had happened to was on a, a, a TV talk show that I was watching. And I found out a couple of things that, was in, that were, were interesting. Number one, they're Christians, which I found exciting. And number two, he didn't look anything like Channing Tatum. Um, <laughs> It was just your average middle-aged white guy. The third thing I found out, though, is that unlike in the movie, he didn't have to win her love back. She didn't remember him. She literally had no memory of ever meeting him, getting married. He was a total stranger to her. And yet everybody was saying to her, you married this guy. And she said, well, I'm a believer in Christ. And I took a vow before God and my family. And so I'm going to choose to love this guy, whether I know him or not. Whether I want to or not, I'm going to choose to love him. And I remember after that interview came out, I, I read comments online, social media and stuff. People said, you know, I like the movie version better. I thought it was much more romantic when he had to win her love back, when, when she fell in love with him all over again. And, and my response was to the contrary. I think it's much more romantic when someone says, even if you don't look like Janning Tatum, even if you don't win my affections, I choose to love you. That's commitment. That's real love. Love is a choice. It's an act of the will, and that's the kind of love God loves us with. First John 3:16 says, "We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's how we know what love is, because he died for us. And the Bible never says that Jesus died for us because of the way we looked or because we obeyed Him so well. We didn't, or because we had great potential as world changers, he just chose to love us. Not because of any feelings we stirred up inside of him. He chose to love us because his nature is love. One thing I've learned in marriage is when you choose to love, when you don't feel like it, the emotions come later. The emotions follow that act of the will, but you can't wait for the act, you can't wait for the emotion before you act. So love, what does love really look like? It looks like a woman who has one day off a week, she works hard, but her on her one day off instead of just chilling out at the house, she goes to her elderly parents' house and helps them get work done. Helps them pay her, pay their bills and clean the house because it's her one day a week, that she can be there for them. Love is the man who says, right now I've got to put off some of these opportunities for career advancement because they would mean me being away from home. And right now my kids are very young and I've only got a short window of opportunity to be with them. And they need a dad more than they need an extra 20K a year. Love is the woman who says to her husband, I know it's been months since you've been able to get a job and I know you're trying hard. And I'm worried, just like you are, that we're going to lose our house. But even if that happens, I want you to know, even if we live in somebody's pop-up camper somewhere, or if we have to move in with your parents or whatever, I still believe in you. You're still the only man for me. That's real love. It's really not love until it's costly. It's really not love until you have to make a decision to choose to love someone. And by the way, there are Christians who will say sometimes, you know what? The Bible commands us to love people, but it doesn't command us to like them. And that's true. But I think we use that as an excuse. I think what we're really saying is, I really can't stand that guy. Good thing I don't have to like him. But the question we should be asking, with that person who drives us crazy, that person who rubs us the wrong way, that person who's actively hostile toward us, the question we should be asking is, how would I treat that person if I really loved them? What does love look like in my relationship with that person? Keep that question in mind. We're going to come back to it. The second difference between the world's love and God's love. The world says, I love you for what you do for me. God says, I love you in spite of what you do to me. See, the world is all about what you do for me. How you look. How you treat me. How you make my life better. How you validate my feelings. Or how you help me get ahead in life. But here's what what the Bible says God did. Romans 5.8. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've already heard during the, during the music portion of our, our, our worship service, already heard about the cross. We know about the cross. You know what's amazing about the cross? One of many things. When Jesus went to that cross and died, willingly, there was not one single person on the face of the earth who had asked Him to do that. Nobody. Nobody in the entire Old Testament, all the great saints of old, all the great prophets who looked up to God, none of them said, I need a Savior. I need someone to die for me. God, can you send someone to pay for my sins? Nobody realized they needed that. In fact, most of humanity was actively hostile towards God. And even those, even those who were trying to follow Him were falling way short of the mark. And it was then... Not when we were desperately crying out for help, then when we were his enemies, his declared enemies, then that he died on the cross for us, willingly. He loves us in spite of what we do to him. It's such good news. It's such good news to know that there's nothing we can do that would make God love us any less. In fact, the Bible clearly says in the Old Testament more than once, God compares himself to a husband married to an unfaithful wife. A wife who's so unfaithful. In one passage, it says you're like a you're like the worst kind of prostitute. You you, you pay other men instead of them paying you just to get away from me. And how that wounds the Lord, and yet he continues to love us. Jesus had these 12 disciples who followed him around, and, and we think of them as these fantastic guys because we've named towns and, and schools and hospitals after them. But when, they were, when Jesus was alive on the earth, they were some of the worst followers. They were constantly letting him down, betraying him, denying him. He kept with them. He loved them to the very end. He even loved the people who were driving the nails through his wrists and ankles. He even loved the people who were spitting in his face as he was dying in agony. Prayed for their forgiveness. Isn't it good to know that no matter how bad you mess up, He's still going to love you? It's not based on what you do for Him. but It's based on His character to love. When we start loving like Jesus does, we're going to see Christian young men and women being the ones who stand alone next to the kid on campus who gets made fun of. Or who stand next to the girl who's being cyberbullied to the point where she's about to take her own life, even though that puts you in the firing line. We're going to be the kinds of people who treat our employers with dignity, even though sometimes our employers don't treat us the same way. We're going to be the kind of people who in our marriages, those of us who are married, we stop making lists of ways our spouse falls short. We've all got those mental lists, let's, let's be honest. And instead, spend our time making lists of all the ways we could do a better job of meeting their needs and helping them grow into the person God called them to be. You see, the the love of God, when we start living it, is a redeeming love that can take any relationship and turn it into a miracle. Because no one can resist that kind of love for long. And then third, the world says love is a contract, but God says love is a covenant. The world says love is a contract. I want to tell you a little secret about myself. I have this recurring nightmare, and it happens every month or so. In fact, I had this dream uh, last week where I'm standing in front of you on a Sunday, and sometimes it's in this room, and sometimes it's some alternate location. You know how dreams are. But in every case, I'm standing in front of you with my Bible open and it's only then, only then, you know, Nathan or Robert has done uh, leading in song and I'm now standing in front of you and it's only then that I realize I forgot to prepare anything to preach. And I don't have any notes and I can't even read my Bible in front of me. It's just kind of jumbled and I stand there with nothing to say. Now, just imagine. Now, that's a dream, right? Thankfully, just a dream. But imagine it really happened. Imagine I came next Sunday and I was like, I just wasn't feeling the whole sermon prep thing. You get to go home early. Some of you would be very excited about that, I know. But if I did that, it wouldn't take long before you'd start to say, this is your job. This is what you're supposed to do. If you called the church this week and you said, hey, I I need to see the pastor. Can I make an appointment with him? And they said, well, we were hoping you knew where he was. We haven't seen him in days. You would have reason for concern. Because see, we have a contract, you and I. If you're a member of First Baptist Church, a, a portion of your tithes helps feed my family. Thank you for that, by the way. But I owe you something in return. There are certain responsibilities that are spelled out in our bylaws that I'm glad to perform. But if one or the other of us stop doing it, the other is free from his contract, right? That's the way business works. Wherever you work, it's the same way. But here's the thing. The problem is when we take that mentality and apply it to our relationships, the problem is when we say, yeah, I'll be your good friend, I'll be your faithful spouse. I'll be your obedient child. But only only if you live up to my standards. Only if it pays for me. Because if, if you start breaking the standards that I have for you, I'm out of there. I'll kick you to the curb. That's how the world views love. It's only love as long as you're meeting my needs. But God says, I've made a covenant with you. And I've sealed it in my own blood. And that means I'm going to love you no matter what. That means even if you never love me back, I will pursue you to the very gates of hell itself. And if you choose to enter into that place and spend eternity apart from me, I will respect your wishes, but it will be over my dead body literally. It won't be because I didn't try to stop you. And if you do, if you do say yes to my love, you're mine and I'll never let you go. In fact, Romans 8 says it this way, Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Another pastor named Brian Chapel talks about a friend of his who has an outwardly perfect life, an attractive wife, several beautiful kids, nice house. He has a good career. What people can't see is that his wife suffers from a mental illness that just devastates their lives. It's not the kind of mental illness that is easily discernible because her problem is she compulsively spends money. She compulsively buys things to the point where when he says, I've got to cut you off, and he... he, restricts her funds, she'll go home and take something out of the home and take it to a pawn shop to get money to buy things. And he's come home before and the house was cleaned out or he's come home and his car is gone. He's come home and found out that she somehow found her way into the bank account and his money is now gone. And she knows that this is awful and she's tried to get treatment, but it doesn't work. And she hates herself for this. She's even uh, attempted suicide because she's so distraught over what she does that she can't control. And his friends have said to her, why don't you just leave her? We would all understand. And he says, you know, I love her. My boys love her. She's a good mom. And Besides that, my job as a dad is to teach my sons what God is really like. And I want my boys to know that God loves unconditionally. And if I had conditional love for their mother what would that teach them about what God is like? If I cut her loose, yeah, yeah, life would be easier sometimes. Sometimes I think life would be easier without her. But if I walked away from her, what would that teach my boys? You know, it's our job as Christians to show the world what God is like. We're the only Bible they'll ever read, most people. And if they want to know, if we want them to know that God loves unconditionally, sacrificially, then we need to live that way. They'll only see it in us. What kind of job are we doing of that? I have a friend named Joe McKeever who's a pastor in another state. He tells a story of a guy he knows who grew up, literally grew up in a bar. His parents owned a saloon. He, was, he had no contact with any kind of church environment. Uh, just grew up around people who showed up every day to drink. And yet, when he was a young adult, he somehow came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. And what's more, even more surprising, he became a Baptist preacher. Can you believe that? Became a preacher so well-known, so beloved, he became known across the convention as Mr. Sunday School. Late in his career, he stood before an audience full of preachers and he told his life story and he said, you know, the sad thing is, I don't remember anybody ever being mean to me until I started working at a church. Grew up around drunks. Everybody there was nice to me. Start working at a church. That's the first time I remember anybody really being mean to me. Why is that? Why are... Some of the meanest people you've ever met, some of the most religious people you've ever met. Now, I've been in church my whole life. I've worked in church over half my life. And almost all Christians I know are the most lovable, gracious, humble, generous, kind-hearted, and enjoyable people I know. I love getting to work with them and minister to them. But in every church, there's that handful who maybe, maybe they're just broken inside. Maybe somebody else has hurt them. They're just, they're just so mean and petty. And they send anonymous notes to try to criticize something going on or, or to try to puncture somebody else's pride. They're always stirring up trouble. They're always drawing attention to themselves. They're never happy about anything. If you don't know that those people exist, just talk to your unchurched neighbor. Ask them, what do you think of when you hear the word Christian? And I bet it's not love. Or talk to the person you know who grew up in church and left because they got burned somewhere along the way. And I promise you, you know people like that. You know, the sad thing is some of those handful of people I mentioned are actually preachers themselves. When you know it, they're the ones that get quoted on CNN. They're the ones that get quoted in the media. So we've got a lot of work to do because that handful of people makes more noise than all the rest of us put together. We've got a lot of work to do to change the world's idea of who God is. And how do we do that? How do we start loving people like Jesus does? Three things, and then, then we'll wrap things up. three things we each need to do. Number one, admit that love doesn't come naturally to you. I know it's hard, but just say, Lord, by nature I'm not a loving person. By nature I'm selfish. I'm petty, I'm small, so teach me to love like you do. Pray this daily. Man, if you pray for the ability to to make more money or pray for healing, you ought to at least pray for your soul too. Lord, teach me to love. Secondly, start a love apprenticeship. And that's just a semi-clever way of saying, if you wanted to learn how to work on cars and you had a friend who was a master mechanic, I would highly recommend spending time with him. If you wanted to learn how to play the violin and you had a friend who was a violin virtuoso, hang out with her. You'll learn some good habits. If you want to become a person who loves, why not spend as much time as possible with the one person in human history who loved perfectly, and that was Jesus Christ. And guess what? He's got room on His calendar for you. Anytime you want to spend time with Him, He's there. So read His Word. So spend time in His presence. Meditate upon Him. Pray to Him and just say, show me who you are. Getting to know Him is going to teach you what love looks like. But number three, number three, just choose to love. That's the key right there. Choose to love. The more you choose to love, the more it will become a habit. Here's my challenge for you, okay? If if you're asleep, wake up. If somebody next to you is sleeping, wake them up because here's the challenge. You notice in the bulletin, I said we need to pray every day this week. Lord, show me someone who needs the love of Christ. Help me to love them. The challenge is this. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, from the time we wake up till the time we go to bed, we're all going to try this, All right, Tomorrow, every person we meet, we're going to ask ourselves the question, what does does love look like in my relationship with that person? If I was going to treat them with love right now, what would it be? What what would it mean for me to love this person right now whether it's your your family member whether it's the just a common acquaintance whether it's somebody you just meet for the first time And that could mean being more patient with somebody who drives you nuts. That could mean having a difficult conversation where you confront somebody about something that nobody else had the courage to confront them about. It could be doing something very kind and considerate for someone who's lonely. It could be going out of your way and doing something sacrificial that really costs you in terms of time. But tomorrow, with every person you encounter, say, what could I do right now that would be loving this person right now? Just see how your day goes. See what kind of pattern you can start in your life. Earlier I said, you don't have to like people, you just have to love them, right? But here's what I've learned. When you choose to love people you don't like, pretty quickly, you start to like them. You start to see them through the eyes of God. You start to see them for the reasons why God loves them in the first place. And one of the great signs that you're growing in your ability to love is your list of people you don't like gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And all your friends that enjoy gossiping and and bagging on other people, they don't like you as much anymore because you won't participate with them anymore. And they'll say, man, I can't stand that guy because... And you'll say, yeah, but he's got his good qualities too. And they're like, what? That's a good sign. Let's see if we can accomplish that through the power of Christ. In fact, let me just say this. Imagine if you would that First Baptist Church Conroe became known in the community as the church full of people who love others. People just said, you know, everybody I meet from that church, they just go out of their way to show you love. What if that became our reputation in the community? What if that that mindset spread to other churches in our community too? My theory is that if churches in this community became known chiefly for loving others, We wouldn't have money enough to build buildings big enough for all the people that would want to follow Jesus Christ. Let's see what happens. Most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's the good news. When God talks about loving others, He's not saying, if you love enough people... You'll be good with me. If you love enough people, when you die, you'll go to heaven. If you love enough people, I'll forgive all your sins. If you love enough people, I'll call you mine. He doesn't say that. In fact, the shocking thing about the gospel is God loves cranky Hank as much as he loves me or you. The good news is Jesus did the work. Jesus came and laid down his life for us. And that, that removes the separation entirely between us and God. It's not about what we do for God. It's, what about, it's about what He has already done for us. So remember, living a life where you're pursuing love, love for God and loving others is the best possible way to live. But even when you fail, even when that inner two-year-old comes out of you and says, mine, God's still going to love you just as much because He is love.